This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Less and less Christian demographically, America is now home to an ever larger number of people who say they identify with no religion at all. These non-Christians have increasingly been demanding their full participation in public life, bringing their arguments all the way to the Supreme Court in some cases. The law is on their side, but that doesn't mean that their attempts are not met with suspicion or outright hostility. The book I'm looking at today is Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life by Jay Wexler. In it, he travels the country to engage the non-Christians who have called on us to maintain our ideals of inclusivity and diversity. With his characteristic sympathy and humor, he introduces us to the summum and their seven aphorisms, a Wiccan priestess who would deck her city hall with a pagan holiday wreath, and other determined champions of free religious expression. As Wexler reminds us, anyone who cares about pluralism, equality, and fairness should support a public square filled with a variety of religious and non-religious voices. The stakes are nothing short of long-term social peace. A professor at Boston University School of Law, Jay Wexler is also a humorist, short story writer, and novelist. A one-time clerk to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the great RBG, and former lawyer at U.S. Department of Justice, he has written for National Geographic, the Boston Globe, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Salon, and many other outlets. His nonfiction books include When God Isn't Green, The Odd Clauses, and Holy Hullabaloos. He joins me today to talk about our non-Christian nation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Jay Wexler to talk about his book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me on. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you ended up coming to work in your field. Uh, well, I, I guess it goes all the way back to my upbringing as a, as, a, as a Jew. My parents were Jewish. They wanted me to go to temple, and I, uh, I hated it, every minute of it. And it, so it got me to thinking about religion a lot and, uh, and what it means to be somebody who doesn't really believe in a religion but is surrounded by the religion. And then I went to, then I went to high school at a Catholic school. So it was, a, I was a Jewish atheist in a Catholic school. And that added to my interest in this, uh, in the, in the question of, you know, what the role of the atheist is in a religious setting. Uh, I, 
when I was in college, I started studying Chinese religion, uh, which I got really into for a while. And I was thinking about going and getting a PhD in Chinese religion. And I started that uh, and quit when I realized that my Chinese was way too terrible to support any kind of career there. So I went to law school, but I was still interested in religion. And so I, uh, I, I studied religion and law, First Amendment stuff when I was uh, at law school. And, and that's how it started. And so now that's now I teach First Amendment law and I write about law and religion and it's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. So maybe tell us next how you came to write this particular book. Well, I mean, in a way, this book is kind of a culmination of the lots of things I've been thinking about since I started, uh, really, since I started thinking about the First Amendment in, in law school. Uh, but I was sort of collecting stories in the back of my head as I heard them. Uh, for example, the the Pentacle story, which I know we'll talk about, um, involving the Wiccans and and then uh, uh, the story about the summum, which we'll talk about. So, so I, I, I sort of collected these stories of minority religions taking part in public life or trying to take part in public life. And then when the Satanic Temple came around, um, I kind of realized there was enough there for a book. And that's when I started putting it together and decided to write a whole book about it, the phenomenon of minority religions and, and atheists in public life. Right. Yeah. So let's set the stage here. Um, in your introduction, you explain the current reality of the relationship between religion, the government and the law in the United States. So let's maybe start by reviewing what the framers of the Constitution intended for this relationship on up to what we see in practice with regard to some recent Supreme Court rulings. Yeah, that well, that would take a, a while to do a, the whole thing. Uh, but also, yeah, I'll be, sorry I'll to summarize you. <laughs> In the beginning, there was James Madison. Uh, you know, the framers, it's hard to generalize what the framers thought. There are lots of framers, and we know what some of them thought. We don't know what others thought. And uh, Matt, James Madison was very in favor of separation of church and, church and state. Uh, others were also, but not everybody is uh, to the same degree. But I don't put all that much... Uh, reliance on what the framers thought in my own work, just because I think the country has become so different, both in terms of how big the government is, but also how diverse the religious landscape is. Uh, so I, I, I like to think about how uh, the, the Supreme Court started thinking about this in the mid 20th century, and th which is really when it started considering issues of separation of church and state, and whether the government can support religion in various ways. And and it took up a, a bunch of cases in a lot of different areas, including financial aid to, to religious schools and whether religions could put monuments up and, for, uh, and things like that on public property. And uh, for a while, I think the Supreme Court policed the Establishment Clause pretty well, making sure that there wasn't too much government support of religion. Uh, there were a number of cases which were a little... I mean, I, I, kind of questionable in their reasoning, I think, but but ultimately correct in that they placed a lot of limits on the government support of religion. Uh, in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a bit of a change where the Supreme Court has almost thrown up its hands about the Establishment Clause, and it's basically hasn't struck down anything as a violation of the Establishment Clause since 2005. It basically 
almost everything goes now. And so the government uh, is allowed to support religion through money. It's allowed to let religious uh, people start government meetings with invocations or prayers. It allows uh, all sorts of religious monuments, including gigantic crosses on public property. So I guess what I would say is that over time, the Supreme Court has been less and less interested in keeping religion out of public life or keeping the government uh, away from supporting religion. Right. So before we move on to some of these specific examples, let's turn now to talking about um, what constitutes these non-Christian groups. Um, So let's think about the demographic landscape of America here. Uh, You say that for the purposes of your approach, you're counting atheists as non-Christian religious groups. Um, And if we include them and the so-called nuns, what does this minority block look like? Well, it's pretty large. Uh, That's what's uh, so interesting. It wasn't so long ago, I think, where we could say that 90% or 95% of the country were were Christians. These days, the demographic numbers show that if you combine all the people who say they don't believe in, in, in any God or any organized religion, and which is something in the order of 20 to 30% of the population, you put them together with people who say they believe in minority faiths, Judaism, Islam, etc., uh, you get a pretty substantial number of uh, Americans who do who are, do not identify as Christian. So some of them are minority religious believers, some are non-believers, but something like 30% maybe uh, are, are not Christians these days, and that's a big change from where we've been. Right. So as you mentioned, um, some of the Supreme Court rulings of the last uh, few decades, the more recent ones, especially the Trump-era Supreme Court uh, rulings have precluded the possibility of a complete, completely secular public square. So we're kind of giving up on that idea. Um, and so you're suggesting that including diverse voices is a better alternative than being drowned out by Christians. And ironically, it may be our best hope of creating that secular country. Um, and so you feel that the examples you include here make a persuasive case for that view? Well, I think I think the cases that I put in the book make a persuasive case that it's better to have uh, to have religious pluralism in the public square than it is to have the public square dominated by Christianity. I think that to me is absolutely clear. Um, you know, I think that the, that a secular public square would probably all things being equal would be preferable. But as you, as you point out, uh, I, I also think that that ship has sailed at least for the next generation, given, uh, the judges that that Trump has put in. So now, so that's why I say uh, it's better to have a, 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 a pluralistic cacophonous, as I say, public square when it comes to religion than just one that's all Christian. Now on the question of whether uh, minorities demanding religion in public life is likely to lead to secularism, that I don't know for sure. Sh- for sure, if that will happen, um, there are some instances where it's happened uh, in, in in small situations, usually involving the Satanic Temple. Um, I don't know if that will, will end up happening, but but at the end of the day, I don't think it matters because I think either having a secular public square or a pluralistic public square is better than having a purely Christian public square. Right. 
Okay, so let's start. Um, you mentioned the the, the summum already, so I want to start with this quirky group that's in Utah. So Utah has the Mormons and these folks, um, and they embrace something that they call the doctrine of the seven aphorisms. So, what are these guys all about? Well, they are fascinating, and um, they they're a very small group in Salt Lake City. They their headquarters are in kind of like a, a just a neighborhood, but they have a big plot of land in the neighborhood with a gigantic pyramid on it. And they believe that uh, in 1975, their founder, this guy named Corky, uh, who, who was an administrative sales manager at a, at a company in Salt Lake City, was visited by higher beings who kind of took him to a different plane. And he went into a pyramid and he was given these things called the seven aphorisms um, by the supreme beings. And the seven aphorisms, according to the Summum, were actually what Moses was supposed to give to the Jews, uh, you know, in the biblical story. God gave the seven aphorisms to Moses, but Moses decided that his people were not ready for them. So he got rid of the seven aphorisms and gave the people the Ten Commandments instead. So the seven aphorisms are kind of a completion of the Ten Command, what the Ten Commandments started. So this group, which is very small. I, I don't know exactly how many people are in it. It could be a dozen, could be a couple dozen. I don't really know. But they uh, they believe in these seven aphorisms. They believe in, uh, there's a lot of Egyptology in their religion. They believe in mummification and, uh, and some other things. And of course, the pyramid, which I visited, which was awesome. Um, and, uh, and so they, uh, they, yeah, I guess that's that's what I would say about them. Um, you know, they're a small group. They meet weekly. Uh, I think they might, some of them live uh, in the same compound and they have these very interesting, quirky beliefs. And they offer services for sale of mummification, you mentioned. Uh, yeah, you can, you can order yourself a mummification for, uh, you, uh, it costs a lot, um, but you can, <laughs> you can, uh, you can I am so tempted. It. <laughs> it is tempting, isn't it? But yeah. even more tempting, I think, is, you know, they, for for a, a smaller for a, a cheaper price, they'll mummify your pets um, when they die. And I, I like I have a twenty five pound cat, and I I think it would be great to have. I mean, I I hope he doesn't you know die anytime soon. But when he does, I'm kind of thinking a mummy of him would be kind of cool. <laughs> it's better than taxidermy, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> no, I think so. You get you could you uh, within the inside the pyramid there are lots and lots of uh, cat sarcophagi. I guess is the plural of that word, and um, I didn't wasn't expecting that, but that but it was filled with uh, with cat sarcophaguses. Oh, this is just so much fun! So, so to get into their legal battle, they entered into a dispute with their town over their right to erect a seven aphorisms monument next to a monument of the Ten Commandments in a public park. So, maybe give us a bit of a history about such legal battles uh, in the U.S., and then tell us what happened here in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Yeah, so there have long been lots of legal battles, including ones that have made it to the Supreme Court over the Ten Commandments, whether the government could put the Ten Commandments up in a school, whether it could put it up in a uh, on, say, state capital grounds, whether it matters that the thing that the Ten Commandments monument is big or small, or whether it's been around for a long time or just a short time, or whether it's surrounded by bushes or other monuments. There are case after case after case about the Ten Commandments. But the Supreme Court in 2005 
basically said that if you have a, a, a Ten Command a Ten Commandments monument that, that's been on government property for a long time and nobody's complained about it, then it's probably fine. Uh, that it was a case involving a, a the Ten Commandments display in Austin, Texas, on Texas State Capitol grounds. So there's an exact same. Uh, monument up in this town called Pleasant Grove, which is pretty near Salt Lake City. Uh, it's a park called Pioneer Park, and it has some historical monuments, and then it has the Ten Commandments. And this is pretty close to Salt Lake, so the so the Summum asked Pleasant Grove if they could put up a monument to the seven aphorisms next to the monument of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and perhaps not shockingly, the town said, no, we're going to pass on that offer. Um, we're not going to put up the ten, the seven aphorisms because it's not related to the history of our town or the U.S. or anything else. And that's when the Summum brought a lawsuit and said, hey, if you're going to put up the Ten Commandments, you have to put up the seven aphorisms too. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court held that, no, the government does not have to put up a monument just because you ask it to put up a monument. Just because it has a monument to the Ten Commandments doesn't mean that you can therefore ask it uh, to put up a monument. I'm sorry, a memorial to uh, a monument, rather, to the Ten Commandments or any other religion. So they lost nine to zero. Hmm. But it was a good battle, <laughs> I thought. I mean, I, I, I wish that the, I really wish that the town had put up the the, the seven aphorisms, but they just, it was a non-starter with them. Oh, that is a shame. Yeah. So let's move on to the Wiccan that you mentioned earlier. Um, so you mentioned in your next chapter that. Um, the the military surprisingly uh, has a significant community of Wiccans, and so the issue came up when um, the Wiccans wanted to have uh, the Wiccan symbol on the uh, headstones of fallen military members, and there was some pushback on that. So, first, give us some background on this group in case any of our listeners isn't familiar with them, and then tell us about how this dispute unfolded. Right, so uh, Wiccans are a pagan group. Um kind of come from England originally. There are many, many Wiccans uh, in the United States. They sort of, it's very hard to generalize about about what Wiccans believe, but they believe in, they sort of worship nature. They worship various goddesses and, and uh, uh, who are sort of imminent in nature. So they're, they don't believe in a God, uh, but they, uh, like a, a single God, they're kind of polytheistic and, and, and worship nature in a various forms. And their symbol is this pentacle, which links, um, I, I'm going to screw this up, but links like the five elements, uh, air, water, spirit, a couple others. And, um, <laughs> and so, so that's their symbol. And they, uh, a, a Wiccan died in Afghanistan and he was being buried in the, in the national cemetery in Arlington and his wife, wanted to have a Wiccan pentacle placed on the headstone. National Cemetery headstones uh, have religious symbols on them. You can choose the religious symbol that you prefer, but but only if it's on the list of approved symbols from the Veterans Administration. And at the time this dispute occurred, there were maybe 32 or 33 different symbols that had been approved. Mo many of them were crosses. Maybe most of them were crosses. There were some others. There was the Jewish uh, star and, and others, but there was not a Wiccan pentacle. And so the man's wife said, I'd like the Wiccan pentacle. And the VA 
never really answered her. They gave her the runaround. They, uh, they said they were considering it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, meanwhile, they were approving other religious symbols. So it was, became clear to her that they were giving her the running around. So she basically got legal representation. And the, this group called the Americans United for Separation of Church and State sued the Veterans Administration and said, You're, you are discriminating on the basis of religious viewpoint by not allowing the Wiccans to put their pentacle on National Cemetery headstones while allowing Christians and other groups to, to put their symbols on. And pretty quickly, the, the Wiccans won that case. Uh, it didn't even go to court. The VA settled when it became clear during the discovery portion of the lawsuit that that the reason why the government didn't want to put the pentacle on the National Cemetery headstones was because it didn't like witches. I mean, that basically came out during the case. And mm. that's a violation of the of the religion clauses, if anything is. So so now you can have a wicked pentacle on your headstone if you want. You, the, in fact, the pentacle, the, pen, uh, the VA uh, changed their rules altogether. They've started approving all sorts of uh, symbols, including... The uh, Hammer of Thor is approved now. There's something called the Druid Awen. There's a little heart, just a heart, in, ca- in case you're not religious and you just want to put something about love on your headstone. So it was a great, it was a great battle with a great result, and uh, it's my favorite, one of my favorite stories, if not my favorite story from the book. Oh, that's fascinating. You also include in this chapter. Um... Uh, a few stories about some efforts of some non-Christian groups to stage alternatives to the nativity scene uh, in public spaces at Christmas. And some of those are quite amusing. So are there any favorites that you have from, from those? Those are pretty funny, right? Um, they're uh, the, my favorite, I guess, is the satanic temple. And I know we'll talk about them uh, shortly. Uh, the satanic temple every year puts up something they call the snake scene. Uh, it, I think usually it's in, in Lansing, Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan, the capital of Michigan. Uh, and the, uh, they've done it other places too, I believe. And it's kind of a small satanic, uh, symbol with a snake kind of, I actually don't remember exactly what the snake's doing, but they could, if there's a snake and it's called snaketivity and they, uh, uh, and it, they put it near the nativity scene on state grounds if they can. The, uh, freedom from religion foundation, which is a secular group has their own symbol, which involves kind of uh, some of our founding fathers looking at the constitution as though the constitution were like a, uh, were like the baby Jesus. Uh, So there are all sorts of these, these uh, alternative nativity scenes, uh, if you will. And yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. I think it's great that states and cities have allowed them to, to, to do it without battling them. Uh, uh, Not always. Not always are they happy to allow these alternative symbols on public property, but oftentimes they are, and uh, at, at least during the Christmas season. And yeah, it's fun. <laughs> that is fun. I'm surprised that they're not met with more hostility, I guess. but uh, Maybe they are. I mean, I, I suppose I don't know that they're not uh, met with hostility. I guess what I know is just that there are m- numerous instances of them being put up and uh, and and even staying up, of course, sometimes they get pulled down. Uh, so, so I guess what I'm saying, more accurately, what I'm saying is that the the off is that the government, in a non-trivial number of times, has said, "Sure, go ahead, do it." And there was not a big battle about it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we should count our blessings where they come. Exactly. <laughs> 
All right. Well, moving on. Next, you take up the issue of municipal meetings that begin with prayer. And of course, those are usually distinctively Christian prayers. And you look at the town of Greece in New York, uh, in particular, where local atheist Linda Stevens sued to put a stop to this practice. So what happened here? So this town uh, fairly recently actually started giving, uh, having each of its town meetings start off with a prayer and uh, and almost every single one of them was Christian and they were all really, really Christian, like uh, to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, et cetera, et cetera. And Linda Stevens is an atheist and she and, a, and, and, and another woman who was a, um, a Jewish woman were like sitting at these meetings and kind of getting, you know, pissed off about this, that there was this meetings are starting with a Christian prayer and they eventually got sick of it and they brought a lawsuit uh, along with Americans United again, separation of church and state. And they said, look, this is a violation of the constitution to start every meeting off with a Christian prayer. And they won in the lower court, the court of appeals in New York. And it went to the Supreme court and the Supreme court held five to four against them saying that it, that it's part of our historical tradition to start meetings off with a prayer and, and, we had and and once uh, somebody is invited to give a prayer, you can't tell them how to pray. So so Linda lost her case, but at the same time, Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, said that if if towns are going to have this practice of starting off their meetings with a prayer, they have to be non discriminatory about it. They have to let um, you know other religions partake, uh, et cetera. He didn't specifically say atheists, but uh, it was kind of inferred that that was included. And so after the case came out, lots and lots of atheists and secularists sort of rushed to try to start giving these invocations, uh, secular invocations before town boards. And some of them were met with hostility and some were not. Linda Stevens asked the town of Greece if she could give a, a secular invocation before the town board of the town said yes. And so uh, I had to go watch the, uh, you know, I, I like to fly and, and uh, go see things, go visit places where things actually happen as opposed to just sort of sitting in the, my office, if I can anyways. And so I went to the town of Greece to meet Linda and to watch Linda, you know, give a secular invocation before the very board she had just brought to the Supreme Court. And uh, I was wondering, you know, how, what the reaction was going to be and whether whether the townspeople would be mad or try to uh, protest or get in her way or anything. And it, it turned out to be very peaceful. Um, nobody, nobody, uh, even not a, there wasn't a single person protesting. The only thing that happened of note is uh, when she was giving, when she was introduced to give the prayer uh, or invocation, the, the head of the town board said, and now we'll hear a prayer from Linda Stevens. And the guy who was sitting next to me took off his hat. Um, but then when she started talking, it was clear to him that it was not real prayer. He put his hat back on. But that was the only mm. like minor uh, thing that I noticed that was any different at all. People were very respectful of her. And she gave a great invocation. And uh, there have been several invocations now before that town board, secular invocations. And so so they lost the case in the Supreme Court. But, um, but this is an example of how you, know, you take what you're given. And, and try to work with what you have. And it's a great example of what I'm trying to get across in the book. Yeah. So, and you say that other towns have, have gone through a similar experience. Is that right? 
Yes, their uh, secular invocations have been going on all over the country. The um, and mostly, you know, I, I, oftentimes they they go completely smoothly. Other times, people object. Sometimes uh, the members of the board will leave the room, for example, um, or turn their backs. And there are a number of jurisdictions which have now passed rules that say they're not going to let atheists uh, give the invocation. And there have been challenges to that brought in courts, and it's, that issue is working its way through the courts right now. Uh, mm. But in many places, it, the invocation, secular invocations go off without, without a hitch. Uh, it just depends on the jurisdiction and what the, you know, the attitude of the people are there. Right. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, so let's move on now to the Satanic Temple, which has come up a few times. Um, and for those who aren't so familiar with this group, which my understanding is they're primarily uh, political, um, many people might think of like bloody rituals like you'd see in horror movies. Um, but but they're not, that doesn't really define this movement at all, does it? So maybe take us through what this group believes, how it differs also from the Church of Satan and what kind of activism it's involved with. Sure. Uh, the Satanic Temple is really, a, uh, in my view, is uh, kind of the hero of the book. Uh, they're a group that was founded in 2012 uh, by a couple of guys, uh, the, one of whom is Lu- named Lucian Greaves. That's his, uh, the name he goes by. And so I, it is, I, in my view, it is, a, it is a religious group. It's also political, but it is a true, uh, I was just going to say honest to God religious group. Uh, but, you know, uh, so... Um, you know, it's a group uh, with a lot of members these days. Started off very small. Now it has, according to some estimates, uh, up to a hundred thousand members. And they do things like they hold rituals, or say, sort of uh, uh, in, in the satanic tradition. They don't believe in the in a personal Satan. They believe they venerate Satan as a symbol of um, uh, of rebellion against oppressive authority, and they kind of link their religious beliefs to uh, a set of romantic Satanist writers like Milton and uh, Shelley and Byron in the, in, in the 16th, 17th centuries. And, um, but, but they, they all, they do also have a very strong leftist political agenda. And part of that agenda is to challenge Christian hegemony in the public space. So what, so what they do is if, if they see, for example, a Christian monument go up, like a Ten Commandments monument, they go and they ask the same town uh, or same state or whatever to put up their monument to, they have a, they have a 10 foot tall, nine foot tall bronze uh, statue that they made for $100,000 of a goat headed occult figure they call Baphomet. And they try to get Baphomet to be put on public property next to the Ten Commandments. Uh, it, that hasn't worked so far, shockingly, again. Uh, but they're in the middle of lawsuits to try to to try to push that forward. Or if uh, a town gives Christian invocations, the Satanist might ask, 
hey, we'd like to also, you know, once a year give a sat- a satanic invocation, which then challenges the town to think about whether they really want to have invocations at all. Uh, if it means that they're going to have, you know, 10 Christian invocations, a Jewish invocation and a Satanist come once a year. So uh, so it's a it's a real religious group that venerates Satan as a symbol. Uh, it's a strong uh, they have uh, a very strong ethical creed. They have a religious community. They have rituals. and They also have this political agenda, much of which is taken uh, much of which is devoted to sort of challenging uh the, the the sort of christian nation concept and ensure and, and and asking for religious pluralism in the public square they are different from the church of satan um, the church of satan was formed in the 60s by anton levey in san francisco and they too believed in satan as a symbol um, but they had all sorts of other kind of beliefs in magic and most importantly, kind of a social Darwinist, Ayn Rand kind of approach to might, might is right um, thing, uh, uh, view of, of the world that the Satanic Temple does not embrace. So the Satanic Temple is very different from the Church, Church of Satan, and they're actually kind of rivals in some ways, or many ways, though they both have at their center this, this veneration of Satan as a symbol of rebellion. And the Church of Satan is kind of dwindled to almost nothing, I think, is my understanding, too, right? Like, it was really kind of just LaVey's thing. and I think that's right. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Church of Satan, but I, but I, my understanding is that it's, it's not nearly as prominent as it was when LaVey was alive. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, very good. Um, so let's talk now about Muslims in school. Uh, you look a little bit at the issue of school voucher programs in your next chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, for anyone, any listeners who don't know, a Supreme Court ruling in 2002 found a way basically to twist logic so that government funds could be put towards private religious schools in America. I'm sure you can flesh that out a little bit better than me. That's my short version. Um, The overwhelming majority of which, of course, of those are Christian schools. Um, And then you go on to explain how this apple cart was overturned when a Muslim school attempted to benefit similarly from this program. So yeah, maybe start by explaining how this legal precedent came to be in the first place. Right. So school vouchers, you know, has been an idea that's been around for a while. um, And it uh, finally was uh, implemented into law in, very, in a few jurisdictions, including Cleveland, which uh, started a voucher program basically to uh, help poor students in a, in a failing school district afford private schools. And so basically the government would write a check uh, of $2,200 or something like that to each family who qualified. And if the family wanted to, they could take that money and use it to go to uh, any private school that was in the uh, in the program, the voucher program. And the, the members of that program could be religious or not religious, but it turns out that almost all of them were religious and almost all of those religious schools were Christian. So, so basically as a result of the program, billions of dollars, maybe millions of dollars, uh, got siphoned into Christian pub, into Christian private schools being, so, so the government was supporting these Christian private schools. The case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said that as long as it's the parent who chooses where to send their kid, and as long as the as the set of recipients of the aid includes at least theoretically both religious and non-religious schools and Christian and other types of religious schools, 
uh, in other words, not just Christian schools. Like, so a, a Jewish school could have participated had one existed in the city of Cleveland. As long as those two conditions were met, the program was okay. So that means that basically voucher programs can be easily created by uh, states and cities to uh, to survive any sort of religious uh, freedom challenge under the First Amendment. So there hasn't been this kind of big wave towards school vouchers like we thought there would be for a variety of reasons, but... Um, but there, in a couple of states, there it was had has been bandied around in the legislature, and so I tell the story of Louisiana and Tennessee, two places that were considering re, uh, voucher programs. And what what I the story I tell is about how there are these legis, a couple of legislators in Louisiana, for example, who were big supporters of school vouchers, uh, mostly because it would mean sending lots of government money to Christian schools. But then they learned that, that, in fact, there are Muslim schools in the world uh, and in America, even even in the South. And, you know, if there's going to be a school voucher program, the, the program has to include the Muslim schools as well as the Christian schools. And so that would mean the government money would go towards funding Muslim schools. And for these legislators who really only wanted the money to help Christians, that was a deal breaker. So they said, you know, I'm not supporting this program anymore because we can't get our money to go to uh, we don't want our government, you know, tax money to go to Muslim schools. It's really, uh, you know, sad tale, I think. And so, uh, what I did is I went and I wanted to, I visited a Muslim school in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, just to see what it was like and you know see what how scary it was. And of course, it wasn't scary at all. It was just a regular school, you know, where they taught Islam, just like a Christian school teaches Christianity, and there are kids running around playing kickball, and you know. So, terrifying right so uh um so yeah th that's you know it's an example of kind of the uh, hypocrisy that you see a lot of times among the christian majority who says yes of course we all religions are uh, uh can participate until one actually does want to participate alongside the majority mm -hmm. we need some uh temple of satan schools out there <laughs> <laughs> well that's i think they might might be working on that i don't know Really? No, okay. no. You know, they did try, um, as I talk about. Well, you might, uh, we might get to this. They did try to uh, set up after-school uh, programs in public schools. True. Yes, we uh, we will get to that. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's enough. There are enough Satanists to create full Satanist schools, but boy, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> no, I'm I'm sure you're right, and and even for your average atheist, I think they they might even be a little yeah. hesitant to quite go that far. But Satan, but, Satan really does has have a way of uh, sharpening the debate. <laughs> you know? Yeah, what? that's why I love it in this context is because some people would be a little bit more soft towards the idea of Hindu symbolism next to their nativity scene and that right. kind of thing, but Satanists, woof. Yeah. That, yeah, that's right out there. Right. Even if it's clear that they're, you know, they're not your they're not gonna hurt anybody, there's no evil. Uh, but just the word Satan mm -hmm. sends people into a tizzy. Mm hmm And the satanic panic is not a hundred percent dead. No, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh before we move on to the after school clubs, um, can you tell us anything else about the allocation of government funds? Uh, in one way or another, directly to religious institutions in America. Uh, there's a lot of it. There, um, the in addition to the the voucher uh, 
context. There's also a lot of money that goes to religiously uh, affiliated social service providers like uh, uh, soup kitchens, um, so, uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous-like programs, uh, uh, that sort of thing, where uh, where the these what's called the faith-based initiative uh, allows religious uh, groups to apply for government funds to fund their social service parts of their organizations. And so you get a lot of money that goes to all sorts of religions that way, including, as I document in the book, a couple of uh, Scientology experiments and um, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and uh, the, uh, you know, the so-called Moonies and all sorts of groups, the Unification Church. Um, and so we actually have a lot, a lot of public money going to religions in various uh, ways that you might not even, you know, you might not even think of. I mean, I mean, if you think about the tax system, that it, you can, can conceive of that as being a major public funding of religion, right? In that we we do give tax exemptions to to religious organizations, which is which represents billions of dollars of aid essentially to religion. Mm-hmm. And um, property tax exemptions to individual practitioners as well, yep. which takes money out of municipalities. Ooh. But um, and my understanding, too, is that oftentimes with these faith based initiative uh, style charities, um, there's sometimes an onus on the person asking for charity to uh, participate in religious stuff oh, in order yeah, to get absolutely. the benefits uh yeah that's the that's you know that's the problem right if you you, you want to get sober and you uh you know you go to a, this group that's affiliated with religion they're not supposed to actually teach religion or try to uh, inculcate religious beliefs in, uh, in people who are taking advantage of the services but how how, how are you going to police that line and of course uh groups are going to promote their religion with that with with the money that they receive yeah okay so let's move on to the public school situation then um there's been some significant efforts by christian groups to smuggle religious teaching in by means of distributing literature for example starting bible study clubs and other methods and um unfortunately some of these efforts have been sanctioned by the supreme court so tell us about this what's happened here and what can we do about it well, uh, the, the the Supreme Court, the big case on this, uh, actually, there's several there's kind of several cases in a line, basically, where the court has said, if you if a, if a public school opens up its classrooms either before or after school for use by school clubs, it, the school cannot exclude religious clubs from being able to use those rooms. So. If the if a public school opens up its after uh, its rooms after school to the Demo- De- Democratic Club and the Republican Club and the Chess Club, it also has to open up those rooms to the the Christian Club and the and the, the Islam Club, right? Which which to some extent is fine, but there are some groups that actually take advantage of this by uh, by by running um, by basically proselytizing through their groups in the public schools. And we're talking about elementary schools here. So we're ta- what I mean is the, this group called the Good News Club. Um, well, it's the Christian Evangelical Fellowship, uh, which runs a series of these things called the Good News Clubs, uh, hundreds of them across the country, where basically they 
they go to the classroom right after school and they, they get kids into the class and they teach them the Bible. They teach them Bible stories. And then and they, if the kids uh, memorize the Bible stories correctly, they get a treat. And uh, it's based, so it's basically uh, religious groups using public school facilities to proselytize young children into Christianity. And the Supreme Court said, that's fine because, you know, if, I mean, if the school opens up the, cl- the, the room to, Democrats who are going to proselytize for, you know, democratic beliefs. What's the difference if uh, if a if a group wants to proselytize for Christianity? So that uh, that's a, a holding of the Supreme Court, and um, it's you know one that's led a lot of <clears throat> religion into the public schools in a, in a way that I think is unfortunate. Uh, you know, and some, but now. Some minorities, uh, religious groups have take have said, well, okay, if you're gonna, you know, similarly to the invocation context or the monument context, uh, religious minority religious groups and secular groups have said, well, we're, we're going to start our own clubs, uh, including the Satanic Temple, which started their after school Satan, you know, or ass clubs, which, uh, <laughs> yeah, which. <laughs> pissed a lot of people off but um but and 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 didn't really i don't think it's one of their more successful campaigns but it is one of their funniest and uh, uh but but more successfully there's been a secular uh, group of lots of secular groups that have started in the public schools uh muslim groups and and other minority religious groups other than satanism hmm. interesting um, in this chapter, you also mentioned your experience attending a Secular Student Alliance conference. So can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, you know, I hadn't been to something like that before. It was, a, a, I think it was at Ohio State, they held it. And it's a Secular Student Alliance. Is a, just a, it's a group that, help, that helps uh, secular kids in, start their own groups uh, in public schools and and in colleges and they get together once a year to have a conference and uh and it's like a lot of young people really really excited about being secular which is not something you see very often i don't think um and there are panels you know on how to start your secular club and there are panels on what to do when the christians you know attack you and or what to do when the principal says you can't start your secular group what do you do there um and so it was really heart in heart heartening in heartening. It was hard it made me feel good as a secularist, you know, to see that. Uh, and, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting about that conference was that the theme was engaged atheism. Uh, the idea being that atheists are really good at sort of, uh, you know, making arguments about how why there's no God, etc. But but if they're gonna, you know, get the hearts of of young people, they need to be doing good in the world. And, and atheists and secularists, you know, have not always been great at providing services, helping the poor, you know, all those kinds of things that religions really do well, usually. And so if atheists want to sort of compete, uh, they need to, they need to be able to appeal to people's hearts uh, as well as their brains. And, and and that was kind of a theme of the conference that I thought was really interesting and uh, and and made me optimistic about sort of the secular movement generally. Yeah, that is encouraging. 
Um, I wanted to ask you too um, about the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, alternately known as Pastafarianism, um, which seemed to me could have found a place in your book, but didn't show up there. Maybe that's just because they haven't, or he, maybe it's just the one guy hasn't been as active lately, but do you know about this group? Oh yeah, no, I know about the group. There's a a footnote in the book about him. Like I did write about them um, in the main part of the book, be, uh, because I don't know enough about them uh, to 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 say with certainty whether they are a genuine religious group or uh, simply a parody or some combination of those two things. Um, you know, I, I I think they're hilarious. Um, so don't get me wrong; I love uh, the flying spaghetti monster, and there are uh, instances of of like displays at Christmas time with uh, like meatballs things like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, which I fully support. Um, you know, I, I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, wary of too many parody groups, um, you know, partaking in this, in, in public square, because I do take religion seriously. And, and I, and I don't, you know, I'm not a particularly big fan of making fun of people's most, you know, cherished beliefs. So I, so I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge parody fan, although as somewhat of a parodist, I guess myself, I appreciate them. Um, okay. There, there is a, there is a it's really fascinating case uh, from a federal district court, which, which uh, had to decide whether Pastafarianism was in fact a religion. And it, the court, the judge took the claim very seriously and, uh, and analyzed it in a, like a 27 page opinion in which the judge finally found that it, that, that the flying spaghetti monster was a parody um, and not a real religion. I don't know whether I agree with that or not, but it is really interesting that such a case exists and that the judge took the claims very seriously. Um, so I don't say too much about the, the, the Pastafarians, uh, but, uh, but there's certainly, certainly, uh, you know, part of this movement and, uh, and, and worth, worth considering, I think. Right. Uh, since you put it that way, it does make sense to me that you wouldn't have included him because um, my understanding, uh, which may be wrong because I'm just going on memory here, but my understanding was that um, the the man who began it there, I'm just trying to see if I can bring up his name really quick, um, Bobby Henderson, I think, um, is uh, has education in philosophy mm-hmm. and uh, he was trying to make a point about the laws. And so he was coming from that perspective, as similar to the way that the Satanic Temple has done by just exposing the hypocrisy with the way the law is interpreted and trying right. to make change in that way, um, which is going towards the spirit of what uh, what your book is interested in. But yeah, he's certainly not proposing any serious kind of belief system, which apparently the Temple of Satan is, has stronger beliefs. I didn't realize that either. That they yeah, were... the Satanic Temple really does. And it's, yeah. you know... It's important to to distinguish also in the, when it comes to the Satanic Temple between you know why the two guys founded the religion and what it's become. Mm. Um, you know, as, as part of writing this book and then going and, and trying to publicize the book, I've met lots of members of the Satanic Temple, uh, and and it's you know as genuine a religion as uh, as any. They uh, there are theological debates. There are. Um, you know, uh, full-blown rituals. There's, um, you know, discussion of the ethics of the group. 
there are holidays there it, it, it has it's kind of taken on a life of its own and and uh and the members of the group you know have directed it in certain ways it's it's uh so i have no doubt that it is a that it's a genuine religion no regardless of how you know it might have been started or what the motives of, of some members of the satanic temple might have been uh it's without a doubt grown into a serious religious uh movement huh wow okay um, I want to take a moment then to just look back over your findings more generally. Um, if we look at the overall landscape of the presence of religion in the public sphere today, um, you've already you've already talked about how um, we've seen this erosion of the division between church and state. But I'm wondering, would you say that the momentum is on the side of the Christians who'd like to be the sole religious voice, or is it with the advocates now for this cacophony of religious voices in the public sphere? Yeah, well, as much as I'd like to say the momentum is on the cacophony, uh, I'm not. I'm not really confident of that. I, you mm-hmm. know, especially we've got our Trump's America, and and worse, uh, the Supreme Court. You know, the Trump Supreme Court, which is uh, which is going to outlive the Trump presidency, and True. and who knows what that will result in. So, um, so, so I, I think the Christians are still have the momentum i think is how i would describe it i mean there i uh we there's this new movement that that is the what the book is about and i think it's gaining strength but i i I would hesitate to say it's it's got the momentum on its side yet so there's a lot of work to be done and it's you know it's hard work to to go to your christian government basically and ask you know, for the things that you already deserve. Um, yeah. Uh, and it, and it takes a lot of courage for people to do that. And, you know, cause they're going to get attacked and they might get, you know, end up in, in court and in pub in the newspapers and they might get death threats. And, uh, so, so it's a long battle and a hard road. And, you know, so, I mean, part of the book is about how, you know, these were in some ways heroes, I mean, at least to me and, but but that they they've got a lot of challenges ahead. Yeah, um, I'm up here in Canada. I'm fortunate because we're generally more secular. I mean, there's plenty of Christians here, but there it's much more of a secular atmosphere, mm. especially in the public sphere, than there is in the United States. And I've got a bunch of family down there, so so I do I can really feel the difference. Yeah, huh. um, we love Canada. I love him. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not far away. I'm in uh, Quebec City. So oh, I'm Co- Quebec is an nice. especially secular province. There's a real, and they've inherited it from France, yeah. right? From the mm-hmm. French feeling that the the law is supposed to protect you from religion um, because religion could be the aggressor. And so there was the quiet revolution here where, um, and, and that was recent enough in the 60s and 70s to still feel this uh, a little bit of animosity and skepticism towards religion as an institution. So, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I'm not so sure I would, I prefer the, well, the French model. I, I mean, I don't know, you know, France goes a lot farther than True. I think a lot of us uh, would even contemplate. Like, I don't think that people should be prohibited from wearing headscarves, for example. Um, oh, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that's way too far. Um, yeah, and it's and and I don't think we would, you know, even the biggest separationists in the United States would be pretty skeptical of that kind of thing. But uh, but 
it's still interfering in what people do, you know, which yeah. just seems like an overstep by the government. Certainly, I would agree with you there. I guess I wanted to just close on on the more positive note that mm-hmm. um, e- even though the momentum um, is on the side of the Christians, I think you're right in pointing out that there's th- these kinds of groups and this kind of activism is sprouting up more and more. It seems to me like atheists uh, and agnostics are starting to look around and realize, wow, we need to organize, we need to find each other for moral support. And it seems to me that that more and more of that is happening. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I say that the momentum is not, is still on the Christian side, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, the, the head start <laughs> that they have. Okay. Right? Um, uh, uh, you're, uh, it's definitely true that uh, that the the religious diversity of the country is increasing. The number of people who don't believe in religion is increasing, and the amount of uh, and the willingness of those groups to organize and demand their rights is uh, is increasing. So, so those things together uh, do result in a, have resulted in kind of a movement, which is making some inroads and uh, and good ones. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, it, the point is, I think it's just that it's, uh, the battles need to, we need to con- keep fighting the battles because it's, it's going to be a long, you know, we can't assume that the, the Christian majority is going to just fold and allow the minorities into the public square. So, so it's, a, it's just that there's a lot of work to be done, but, but a lot of work is being done by really, you know, innovative and interesting and dedicated people. So that is, I think, a, a good sort of optimistic message to, to, to end with, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So to any of our listeners out there who feel like you're a lonely atheist out in the wilderness, um, you may be surprised to find that there is a group very close to you, actually, that gets together for moral support or activism locally in your area. So it's worth a Google. But Jay, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for coming uh, and agreeing to come on the show. Um, but before we go, tell us a little bit what you are currently working on. What I'm currently working on, uh, it's a very different uh, uh, project. I, I teach marijuana law. Uh, oh. And so, uh, and I've been teaching it for a few years. And I'm uh, writing a book about marijuana law in the United States called Weed Rules. And... Um, my what I wanted was to have an exclamation point after the rules. We oh, rules. okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the publisher won't let me have the exclamation point, but they will let me go with the weed rules title. And so uh, I'm arguing uh, that we should have. Um, uh, I'm just it's sort of talking about the the various policy decisions that people, that various states in the United States have to have to make when deciding what their marijuana laws are going to look like. So. So that's what I, I moved from Satanism to weed. Basically. I was going to say you're hitting all the bases for the things <laughs> my parents are terrified of. Right. But <laughs> I yeah. take it your publisher feels like it's too much of um, of a promotion of marijuana to put that punctuation there. I think it's a university press, so they're. Um, oh, I think okay. they just want to be a little more serious. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, hmm. Well, that sounds fantastic. Um, let me thank you again for coming onto the show today. I so enjoyed your book. I was really glad to have a chance to talk with you in person about it. Oh, so. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was just really fun. And thank you for having me on. And thank you so much for the nice words about the book. Oh, great. Good. Well, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Jay Wexler about his new book, Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. If you'd like to find out more about Jay, what he's written, what he's painted, and some other fairly funny stuff, you can check him out online at jwex.com. On a personal note, I want to apologize for my somewhat slowed down schedule over this winter. I'm in the middle of PhD exams, I'm writing a syllabus for the first university course I've ever taught, and there was some international travel over the holidays, all of which has really made me extremely busy and slowed down. So my apologies, the schedule should be picking up again into the new year, and I'm also in the market again for a co-host. So if there's anyone out there who's interested in uh, considering becoming a podcast host for the New Books Network on the Secularism channel, please reach out to us at the website newbooksnetwork.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Have you ever seen a Satanist display anywhere or gone to a Satanist after-school club? I would be curious to know. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynn So that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. And also be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine until my next conversation about new books in secularism.